This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In his book, The Way of Salvation, St. Alphonsus de Liguori asks the question, If now you were at the point of death, already in your agony and almost breathing your last, and about to appear before the divine tribunal, what would you not wish to have done for God? And what would you not give for a little more time to make your salvation more secure? Though these questions are couched in decidedly Christian terms, I believe the sentiment can be shared by many, if not most, adherents to the variety of wisdom traditions. That is, have I lived a good life? Have I been a good steward to that which has been entrusted to me? Well, our guest today has a little more experience than most in answering these questions. Father Richard John Newhouse speaks from first-hand experience when he addresses the subject of death and dying. The reason being, been there, done that. It can be argued that Father Newhouse has gone about as close to the edge as one can to the other side and still take a number in the latest census. Father Newhouse has recently written a book on his ordeal with cancer, medical mistreatment, death, and revivification. Its title is As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning. To introduce you to the Good Father, let me mention that he is acclaimed as one of the foremost authorities on religion in the contemporary world and as president of the Institute on Religion and Public Life. He's also editor-in-chief of the Institute's magazine, First Things. Other books by Father Newhouse are Freedom for Ministry, The Naked Public Square, The Catholic Movement, and Death on a Friday Afternoon. Currently, Father Newhouse is a priest in the Archdiocese of New York City. Welcome, Father Newhouse. Good to be with you, Fred. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day in New York. And uh, my first question to you is, in your first chapter, you write about the notion of death in society, and you give examples of uh, the Sturm und Drang movement of the 18th century and the romantic decadence of the 19th century, uh, which in a way romanticized suicide. Can you talk about that, and what were the motivators in these eras? Well, um, part of the story, Fred, of course, is that throughout the human story, uh, people have been preoccupied with the question of death. Um, and have responded to that question in many, many different ways. In some ways, they become characteristic of an epoch, such as the uh, two periods that you mentioned. Uh, in our time, um, Ernst Becker wrote a very influential book some um, 20 years ago, I suppose, called The Denial of Death, making the argument that uh, the characteristic um response to the inescapable question of death in our society is uh, one of denial. In fact, he turned um, Sigmund Freud upside down, and Freud having uh, suggested that our fear of death has to do with our fear of sex, and Becker said, no, quite to the contrary, our fear of sex has to do with our fear of death. And um, now, these are great cultural generalizations, of, uh, of course, just as uh, the Sturm und Drang and romantic movements of the past. Um, and goes, uh, I, I don't know whether one would say that um, uh, there is really in any time a dominant um, uh, theme, uh, a coherent kind of um, cultural response, but there is no doubt that in every time people are keenly aware that they live uh, day by day against the horizon of inescapable death. But oftentimes there are little movements going on in society, such as uh, you mentioned the romantic decadence of the 19th century, and you say that there was a sort of flirtation with suicide. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in that. Any idea of the genesis Well, in the 19th century, in the, among the romantics, of course, you had a strong connection between inspiration, artistic inspiration in particular, uh, genius, uh, sickness, and death. And so it was uh, 
if one thinks of Lord Byron, for example, or Shelley, uh, where you had this image that um, the genius um, who is possessed of a uh, demon, a, a spirit of uh, creativity, burns himself out early. Um, and um, Goethe's uh, uh, young Werther was a book that in uh, Europe, in Germany, first of all, but then throughout Europe, uh, occasioned uh, what today we would view as kind of um, imitation behavior, where people who fancied themselves to be geniuses, young people, um, committed uh, very dramatic suicides. And um, this is, um, you know, uh, a way of denying death as well. In other words, it's a way of saying, look, death didn't just happen to me. I invited it. So therefore, in some sense, it is under my control. This is the great delusion, of course, that that kind of romanticism engenders. But we have the same thing today with um, the Hemlock Society and with the pro-euthanasia groups. Uh, death with dignity, for example, or choosing your own way to die, is uh, another form of denial of death because it denies the fact that nobody chooses death and that nobody dies with dignity. Death is the final indignity. Death is the final loss of control. And those who delude themselves into thinking that by killing themselves or choosing to have someone kill them gives them control are manifestly engaged in a very complicated psychic game of um, uh, lying to themselves. Do you see that uh, today, is it correct that we have uh, the highest suicide rates today than in any other time in, in recent history? I'm not sure about that. Now, it varies from country to country and culture to culture. The Scandinavia has a very high suicide rate, um, where presumably um, you have a more socialistically oriented uh, form of government where all your uh, creature needs are taken care of. But um, um, Ingmar Berman and others have suggested artistically that that has to do with the climate there as well. <laughs> it is the case today. I mean, you have specific sectors of the culture with very high suicide rates. The uh, so-called gay subculture in um, most of our large urban areas uh, have a very high alcoholic uh, drug use rate and, and a very high suicide rate. Um, a study has been done of the kind of hardcore denizens um, activists uh, within the gay subculture if you uh, in which the study looked at the uh, obituaries that appeared in the gay newspapers in uh, New York, San Francisco, Washington, etc. And um, the conclusion, the finding of the study is that the average age of death was age 42, which is approximately uh, one half the average life expectancy of uh, an American male. Um, now, there, that you have to count to AIDS into that and, and other things. But among the major factors was an astonishingly high suicide rate. One thing that, honestly, I've never been able to, to get my hands around, and I've read books on this, I've seen movies on this, this, this notion of the intertwining of sexuality and death and just, just has never made a lot of sense to me. And you, you mentioned the pornography of death mm -hmm. in the book. Uh, why don't you speak to that for a minute, if you will? Well, there is a sense in which um, unbridled uh, concupiscence, unbridled lust, uh, that is where you simply let it rip in terms of your passions, imaginations, erotic uh, fantasies, which is what, of course, 
pornography plays on, uh, does end up, and this is not something new, this is also evident in the 19th century, um, in a kind of logic toward the, in the case of pornographic uh, films, for example, the snuff film, uh, where always you are pressing the envelope. Uh, um, uh, Michael Foucault, Michel Foucault, the great uh, French intellectual, uh, who destroyed himself in the bathhouses of San Francisco, uh, wrote in a way that has had enormous uh, impact in our academic uh, world today, especially in literary criticism in the whole postmodernist uh, uh, series of fashions that go under the name of postmodernism. Foucault wrote uh, very powerfully, as others have, uh, about the link between um, sexual excess which is viewed not as excess, but as self-expression, and its ultimate termination point, its terminal point uh, in death. Marquis de Sade, to go back to the classic uh, font of modern uh, pornography, uh, de Sade, from whom we get the word sadism, of course, uh, also uh, wrote uh, very perceptively, very in an evil way. I mean, this is... When you're talking about Foucault and Desaad, you are, in my judgment, talking about raw, unvarnished, in-your-face evil. And um, pornography, which is the use of another person. I mean, we use the phrase making a sex object out of someone. Well, hardcore pornography is... uh, taking that rather innocent-sounding phrase and getting really serious about it. You are thingifying, you are making a thing of a person for the stimulation of your own erotic passions. And uh, if you're really going to use somebody, ultimately, what is the final annihilating definitive use, if not death? Let's talk about uh, death. Uh, sorry, it's rather heavy-duty conversation for uh, your readers who are probably, uh, or your listeners who are probably driving home. And, uh, you have no idea the astute academic backgrounds, the, the impressive oh, I, intellectual... I don't, I, don't mean, I don't mean that they don't understand. <laughs> I mean heavy-duty in the sense of uh, rather, um, uh, if not morbid, at least uh, not exactly... Um, it's not, right, right. Well, no, this isn't that kind of radio. <laughs> okay. At least not today, and that's okay. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about how you see death uh, being handled by the mass media. I, I got to say, you give a, a well-deserved pot shot in your in your book, uh, where you talk about um, the sob shot. I've never actually heard that term before, but I've seen it a number of times, and it's one of the reasons I rarely watch television news mm-hmm. when they get that camera right in the face sure. practically see the nose hair and and uh, they ask how do you feel about your brother being you know torn to pieces by that lion whatever it is i mean mm-hmm. how do you feel and they they just waiting for that person to break up and of cry course and, and then then the camera fades away yeah no i mean it's a cheap uh, instance of uh, media sensationalism um, on the one hand, um, and therefore to be sharply criticized. But it also has to be understood, as the people who do that uh, obviously do understand it, and that is that we have an enormous fellow feeling. I mean, the audience does look. Uh, some maybe are, uh, uh, have trained themselves to look away. But uh, the assumption, obviously, of the um, uh, network or the station is that people will identify with, as it is said, that they will empathize with, and therefore keep watching um, uh, through the next commercial, which, of course, is um, the ultimate purpose of the network or the station. You think? (laughs) 
they're yeah. Make, yeah, they're businesses. I know, I know, I know that. Yeah, basically they're businesses, and they're and businesses if they <laughs> are to survive, make money. Right. <laughs> If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Father Richard John Newhouse, and we're talking about his book, As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning. Uh, Father Newhouse, in the book, you mentioned that there are a number of self-help books, uh, How to Cope with Death, etc., and you say that this book is not of that genre. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I quite buy that. I, I'm thinking that if one is of the, the Christian tradition, uh, primarily the Catholic tradition, that this one, this book of yours might act as, as, uh, as a tome on coping with death. Well, if it has that um, uh, effect for people, and a lot of people tell me that indeed it has been of enormous help to them, in their own sicknesses and experiences of the intimations of mortality, and also uh, with, in their, with their families when, when they have someone who is dying or has died. And so uh, many, many people have said, you know, the book was such a, a very big help to them, and I'm very grateful for that. That's very gratifying. But when I say it's not a self-help book, when it's not a how-to-cope book, um, I don't mean that it cannot have that consequence. Indeed, I hope it does. But it's, it's not, you know, here are the five steps through grieving. It's not the kind of Elizabeth Keebler-Ross uh, clinical, uh, psychological, psychobabbled, therape therapeutic uh, discussion of, of the, quote, grief process, and etc. Um, most of such books, uh, which again, my goodness, I know there are a lot of people who say they've been helped by such books. Well, God bless them. But uh, I, I don't think those books um, uh, are quite, how to put it, are quite honest about the fact that death is not a problem with which we are to cope. It is not something that's gone wrong that now here are 10 steps or five steps to fixing it. Death is death. It has its own inescape. First of all, there's number one inevitable. The death rate remains 100% no matter um, what the medical and scientific advances, and it will continue to be 100%. And it, in addition to its inevitability, it has a kind of definitive uh, quality that is to be respected. It's not something either, as I said earlier, to be denied or to be romanticized or to be fixed. Perhaps in our time, along with the denial of death, the fixing of death as though it were a problem, amenable to solution, is uh, a characteristic uh, attitude. You talk about the need to mourn and how religion uh, plays into that. And uh, the same page on, on 44 where you talk about this book not being of, of the Kubler-Ross genre. Uh, let me tell you a little story. I was with a friend of mine who was burying his father. And um, uh, we went together to this church, and he was uh, talking to the person in charge of music. And he wanted Dies Irae. Which is interesting because you include the, the words to that. And he was told, well, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> he, and and uh, my friend was, uh, was not terribly uh, uh, connected at that point uh, to the church. And so the person had to remind him that uh, at this point they call it the mass of the resurrection, not the mass of the dead. <laughs> and my friend was terribly disappointed and just looked at me and said, I want a little rending of garment and gnashing of teeth. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I think your friend's intuition is quite right. I think we have, um, uh, sure, the mass of the resurrection and, and Christians, when we think of death, uh, do understand it within the context of the final victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But along the way to the consummation of that victory, and along the way even to anticipating it with joy now, 
There is heartbreak and loss and catastrophic uh, sorrow and uh, regret and everything that attends the ending of a life and the ending of a love. And uh, this needs to be given full expression uh, liturgically, musically. Uh, plus, there's even a doctrinal question of some great consequence. It is very common in Catholic churches now uh, to have it um, blithely announced that, well, so-and-so is in heaven now, and therefore we should all be happy and, uh, you know, even let's have a round of applause. Uh, this, this is not Catholic doctrine. Catholic doctrine is that we pray for the dead. We don't just simply... Uh, say, oh, well, that's that, and then uh, give a round of applause because they're all uh, happily sitting around the uh, f table of the Feast of the Lamb. We pray they are, but there is a preparation for that, and Catholics believe, except for the martyrs and uh, exceptional saints, um, that those who are headed for heaven get prepared for heaven, which is what purgatory is about. And they are still joined with us. We aren't finished with them, and they aren't finished with us. Um, there is an on. That's why we have masses said. That's why we pray uh, the, the rosary for a, a departed loved one. Uh, and this is a very good and human and humanizing thing to remember that we are still in this continuing communion with one another in Christ, a communion that cannot be broken by the catastrophe of death. Just for uh, listeners' sake who are not familiar with Dies Irae, uh, let me read some of the words which uh, you've uh, been uh, kind enough to print here. The day of wrath, that day will consume the world in ashes as David and the Sibyl prophesied Death and nature will stand amazed when creation rises again to answer to the judge. Recall, merciful Jesus, that I am the reason for thy earthly journey. Do not destroy me on that day. So it, it certainly is uh, a lot more powerful than what you often hear uh, sung at churches, uh, Protestant Catholic alike. Oh, yes. No doubt about it. Um, let me ask you, a little later on the book, you talk about your relationship with uh, this gentleman named, uh, named Kevin. Uh, oh, yeah. An actor, Shakespearean actor, New York, uh, uh, died of AIDS, mm -hmm. and, and he was gay. Uh, what struck me about your writing about him, and this casts no aspersions on you, it, it, it doesn't, you don't sound like the kind of priest that someone like Kevin would seek out as a friend. Do you understand what I mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> no, tell me. Um, one would, then this is just purely a guess, that uh, he would prefer somebody with a, perhaps a little bit more liberal social agenda and all of that. Uh, how did you become his friend? Mm. Well, I think before I uh, knew him, um, and then later he became part of the community of which I'm uh, part, and we have a house here in Manhattan. So before it, before all of that, he had uh, been had a real conversion experience in terms of uh, the way of life that he had been uh, living. Um, very much part of the gay subculture here in New York, and uh, he came to recognize, by the grace of God, that uh, there was something. Um, deviant and uh, deadly in that world, not just from a medical viewpoint, uh, not chiefly from a medical viewpoint, but from a spiritual viewpoint, that it was doing something to him and to the people he saw around him. And um, so I think he came to, um, by the grace of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, to an understanding of uh, Christian truth with regard to uh, uh, sexuality and uh, his sexual orientation and the way in which God enabled him to live uh, after that conversion a chaste and uh, 
marvelously fulfilling life until uh, some years later he died uh, as a consequence of the AIDS that he had contracted uh, years before. Did you think much about him when you were going through your experience? Yeah, because it was about the same time, you see. See, actually, the time of my medical crisis and uh, everything I talk about in the book was exactly uh, 10 years ago today, this very day. Um, And so Kevin was living in the same uh, building. And um, it was a, a... very poignant thing because as the months went on after my crisis I was coming back in the process of being healed and he was going in the other direction I mean there was no doubt that he was dying and he died if I recall September 23rd of that year Um, so that Yes, there was this uh, poignant, is perhaps this intense awareness that we were both engaged in the um, web of life and death. He, a much, much younger man than I, um, but he moving inexorably and rather immediately toward death, I, by all medical indicators, moving toward Uh, restoration in life. We're running out of time for uh, this week's show, Father, but I'd appreciate it if you would make time for us next week. We'll continue this and talk more about your personal experience with death and dying. I'd love to. Uh, And if people are interested in your writings, uh, what is the website that you're connected with? I believe it's for First Things. Uh, Just First Things, one word, uh, firstthings.com. And the book is As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning. And I'm assuming that uh, all major bookstores and some of the minor ones... It is the very measure of whether it is a good bookstore (laughs) as to whether it carries my books. (laughs) But no, yeah, Barnes Noble, Borders, all, all the usual ones. Okay, wonderful. My name is Fred Stella, and you've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. Again, my guest, I'd like to thank Father Richard John Newhouse, the book As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning, and please join us again at the same time next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. It is said that one thing that separates us from other species is humans are the only animals who contemplate their own death. 
And while it wouldn't surprise me all that much to find out that we might discover in the future that primates have this ability, they don't have the ability to write books on it yet. So till then, the jury will be considered out. In the meantime, Father Richard John Newhouse has provided us with a very powerful account of his experience with the dying process. The fact that he is here to speak with us today may indeed be considered to be a miracle. Not only does As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning, record his encounters with cancer, medical bumbling, and intense suffering, but we are taken to the very edge of existence and back again in a very compelling true story. We began our conversation with Father Newhouse last week and are continuing it today. If you are not familiar with our guest, he is acclaimed as one of the foremost authorities on religion in the contemporary world and is president of the Institute on Religion and Public Life. He is also editor-in-chief of the Institute's magazine called First Things. Other books by Father Newhouse are Freedom for Ministry, The Naked Public Square, The Catholic Movement, and Death on a Friday Afternoon. Currently, Father Newhouse is a priest in the Archdiocese of New York City. And Father Newhouse, welcome again to Common Threads. Good to be with you, friend. Uh, last week, we focused more on the philosophy of death and your research and your experience with other people's deaths. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about your, uh, your medical experience uh, primarily. Um, but I do, I would really appreciate it if you would comment on one very simple sentence that is in the book, in the middle of the book. You have all the time there is. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's a um, statement by um, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Well, it is actually it is uh, William Temple who late who became Archbishop of Canterbury later. His father had been Archbishop of Canterbury before him, and when William Temple was a um, very young man, a newly ordained Anglican priest. Um, he was very popular and very much in demand and uh, very busy. And uh, so one time he was talking to his father and he was saying, you know, I, I just don't have, you know, nearly enough time to do all that I'm supposed to be doing. And his father said to him, William, you have all the time there is. Um, and I have um, found that to be uh, a inexhaustibly profound seemingly very simple and obvious but inexhaustibly profound observation it's very much like um jean-pierre de cassade that some of you readers may be familiar with uh, he was a spiritual writer a catholic spiritual writer in the 17th century who's famous for the phrase the sacramentality of the present moment the sacramentality of the present moment that every moment of time contains all time because every moment of time is created by the source of all being including all time namely god and that therefore you should live every moment um not as something that is simply contingent upon what happened the moment before or what's going to happen in the next moment but to see in this moment the sacramental potential of the realization of everything that your life was created and destined to be. A little later on in the book, uh, you talk about the bravado that some people have concerning death, and you use Walt Whitman as an example. Mm. And you seem a bit skeptical of, of that bravado. Uh, but before you answer... Uh, let me read something. Uh, last week, I opened up the uh, the show with a quote from uh, St. Alphonsus de Liguori uh, in his book, The Way of Salvation. And uh, if, I, if I can go back to that, uh, Meditation 81, The Happy Death of the Just, he says, The sorrows of death do not afflict him. He rejoices to sacrifice the last remnants of his life as a testimony of his love for God, uniting the sufferings of his death to the sufferings of Jesus when dying on the cross, the thought that time of sin and danger of losing God are now just past, are now past, and they overwhelm him with delight. What's the difference between this sort of bravado 
and and someone like Whitman or anyone else <laughs> who sort of uh, just says, "Come on, death, you know, yeah, bring it on." Yeah, right. Bring it on. Uh, if I die, then death is me, and I am death. And since I'm great, death must be great too. That's Walt Whitman. I mean, it's uh, egotism unbounded. Um, well, the difference, obviously, with the Christian perception, uh, as uh, understood in that reading you just gave, is uh, is Christ. Uh, is that it is the surrender of oneself, exactly the opposite of Whitman. Whit Whitman tries to appropriate death to the inflation of himself. The Christian, uh, in exact uh, and total contrast, uh, surrenders the self to in, into the hands of God through Christ. Uh, that's that's an enormous difference. That's the difference between damnation and salvation. Let's uh, continue now to your personal experience because that certainly is the meat of the book. You start out by mentioning that the stomach pains and intestinal cramps had been coming on for almost a year. Father. A year before you uh, well, saw yeah, yeah, I mean, on and off, but I mean, I was getting medical attention, as I describe in the book. I had presumably the best uh, medical attention in New York City. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I must have uh, misread this. I thought, uh, the, the way I was reading this, that uh, it took you that long to get to the doctor. Oh, by no means. Oh, no, no. When good. I speak about those colonoscopies and the other examinations and so forth, that was going on over a period of a year. Um, you know, with the doctor trying this and then another doctor trying that and uh, so forth. And none of them um, catching what... Um, in retrospect, uh, became the ghastly, uh, ghastly and obvious truth that there was a huge and cancerous tumor in my intestines. Can you take us a little bit, uh, more than a little bit, into that journey from the time that the uh, that uh, the tumor was found and throughout uh, the, the operations and all of that? Uh, well, yeah, I do that in the book somewhat, although I hope not in a. Um, um, sensationalizing or excessively uh, detailed uh, way from a medical viewpoint, but uh, the long and short of it is that um, I should preface it with this, is that as I say in the book, I've been advised by a number of lawyers over the years, well, you know, you really should sue. This is a, a gross uh, medical malpractice. Uh, and um, I've declined to do that. Um, in part because um, I don't have a litigious bone in my body, and in part um, because it seems to me it would somehow taint my gratitude for um, having uh, been brought through all of this. I, I, I could tell you that one time shortly after, when I was beginning to recover, so maybe um, a couple of months after the, the first and major crisis, I was having breakfast with the late uh, Cardinal John O'Connor here in New York uh, at his residence up in Madison Avenue, and um, so we were chatting about things, and so I told him what I just said, namely about why I wasn't going to sue, and I didn't have a litigious bone in my body, and he looked at me and in his quizzical way said, um, hmm, Father, did you ask whether the Archdiocese had a litigious bone in its body? <laughs> we could use a few million. <laughs> happened is that in a, in a most uh, remarkable way, as I'm assured by um, medical authorities, is um, that this uh, large uh, cancerous tumor was not detected by um, uh, colonoscopies, by MRIs, CAT scans, etc. And so that um, it was on that uh, January 10th um, Sunday afternoon that I was just doubled over in pain on the floor and, and at the house. And fortunately, a uh, uh, good friend, George Weigel, who may be known to some of your uh, uh, hearers, the biographer of the Pope, uh, was there. And uh, he and um, uh, another friend rushed me to the hospital and um, went immediately into uh, 
surgery. Well, not immediately because they couldn't <laughs> couldn't get the elevators working up to the operating room. And by that time, I'd been, of course, doped up a little bit. And I remember very distinctly thinking it was exceedingly amusing, really, that that here we were with all of the apparatus of uh, high-tech medicine and people rushing around doing their important little things and big things. And uh, and then finally, okay, we're racing down for the operating room and we get to the bank of elevators and the elevators wouldn't work. But um, it is a dreadful thing, really. It was... Um, because in this kind of operation, as some of your hearers undoubtedly know, you it's a huge gash all the way from your rib cage down to your groin, and um, they take out um, uh, large, large sections, not only of the tumor, but of the intestine, and put in a, um, um, what should we call it, I'm, I'm blocking here for the moment, the thing that goes into your side, so you... Colostomy? Uh, uh, yes, right. And um, then, um, then they just sewed, sewed me up after about uh, four or five hours of surgery, and um, it, it became evident that I was losing uh, all my vital uh, life signs. Uh, and uh, the reason uh, being I was hemorrhaging uh, madly from something inside. And uh, so, having just sewn me up, they had to open, open the whole thing up all over again and go back in to find out uh, where the hemorrhage was. And it turned out that the spleen had been nicked, as, as the surgeon put it. I, I don't, um, and I think I say this in the book, I don't really blame him at all because it must have been such a ghastly mess of guts and blood and fecal material. It's remarkable that he was able to... Um, get through it was only nicking the spleen but in any way that was uh, the problem and so they had to fix that and then um, sew me up again and um, so this whole process in total uh, went on for about eight nine hours and um, I, I discuss in the book um, one of the remarkable moments where of course I've been totally and very, very deeply uh, anesthetized. And in after the operation, one of the surgeons uh, candidly admitted to me that uh, the uh, um, anesthetist did not know what he was doing and had uh, seriously miscalculated the dose, which contributed to um, uh, my lying there in um, early morning and... Um, uh, being totally alert and hearing the doctors and the nurses and others discussing the case, including whether there were any vital signs at all. Um, and um, then um, there came a time when uh, someone said the Cardinals here, that was, of course, the late uh, John Cardinal O'Connor, a dear friend who I mentioned earlier, and um, and I couldn't move at all. The doctors had been trying for some time, shouting at me, you know, Richard, wiggle your toe, uh, move your little finger, uh, 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 move an eyelash. Uh, and I was, uh, the vision I had, uh, the sense I had was of being encased in a large slab of marble. Um, uh, there was nothing you could move, nothing, absolutely nothing, but your brain is totally alert, totally aware of everything that's going on. But it is as though the brain and all of its functions had been uh, completely uh, uh, cut off from uh, anything having to do with your physical being. And... Um, and then the cardinal uh, uh, shouted into my right ear, he did not shout, spoke into my right ear, and said, Richard, he said, uh, uh, wiggle your nose. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time to myself, now why is he saying wiggle my nose? 
Everybody else wants me to wiggle my thumb or my toes or my eye, eye move an eyelash. But he says, he says, wiggle your nose. And I, I thought to myself, well, he was a chaplain in Vietnam, so he must have been frequently uh, by the side of people dying in, in this, such circumstances. So maybe he knows what he's, what he's uh, saying. And he kept repeating this, Richard, wiggle your nose. And I tried with, uh, like, nothing else in my life, uh, never in my life, was there any instance in which I brought the full concentrated energy of will to bear upon doing something to wiggle my nose and I tried and I tried and then the cardinal says at one point he did it and uh, the surgeon and the several other doctors standing there said well, I didn't know I didn't see it we didn't see it and uh, the cardinal says wiggle your nose again Richard wiggle your nose and oh I, I, I couldn't feel it, but it must, it must have been one hundred and sixteenth of an inch of a wiggle there. And the cardinal says, you see it, you see it, he did it. And then the other doctor said, yeah, I think I saw it. And then I, then I wiggled my nose in a way that I could feel it. And it was, uh, uh, it's crazy. Every, everybody was, hey, he did it, he did it. Look, he wiggled his nose. It was like, you know, the resurrection of the dead. And, um, and as I say, uh, while encased and totally immobilized in that what seemed a slab of marble, all of this uh, I keenly uh, heard, and uh, my mind was racing with the wonder of it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU. The program is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Father Richard John Newhouse, and we're talking about his experiences uh, that appear in his uh, book, As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning. So when you were in this state, when you were in the hospital, when you were about as close to passing over as, as one can get, what are your impressions? What came to you? What, what changed your life? Oh, uh, I'm not the best authority on what changed my life or whether it made me a better person or whatever. Um, God will judge that. And, um, but there were things that did strike me. Um, one was... Um, the total indifference to what was happening, that when you're in that circumstance, and it is, as one of the doctors put it, as though you had been hit by um, uh, a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour and then get your, get up and then you're hit again by the same truck, that, I mean, you're, you're in a position of such helplessness. Um that um, it is utterly futile and vain to think you're going to do anything about this. It is uh, a uh, position of total passivity. And uh, so I, I remember very well that in the intensive care unit, uh, a strange place to be with uh, dozens of things plugged into you and little beeping all around you, monitoring this and that. And, and there was this um, curious little woman who came in, and uh, it seemed to me like she came in about every 20 minutes, although that couldn't have been the case. But you lose sense of time in that circumstance. And she'd say, I want blood. <laughs> and she'd take another blood sample. And I realized at the time, I said, you know, that if she came in and said, you know, uh, now we'll cut off your right leg. I, I would have had about the same response. Oh, well, that's what they do here. They cut off right legs. Okay, now we want your left leg. Oh, well, yeah, go ahead. You know, this remarkable, this remarkable passivity. Now, I've always thought, I remember when I read uh, Dalton Trumbo's uh, Johnny Got His Gun, uh, there was a, the, the main character in there is in a state similar to what you're talking about. I always thought that one would go stir-crazy 
Uh, but that isn't the case. It wasn't like you're just lying in bed bored and you want to get up, but you can't. It wasn't that for me. I mean, now, of course, later on, when, when you began to recover and there were things that you thought you could do and so forth, then the impatience and, and so forth began to assert itself. But no, in the um, core experience of uh, such catastrophic illness, for me... It, it was, as I described, this indifference. Which, there's a Christian tradition, St. Ignatius Loyola talks about holy indifference. And I'm not sure this was holy indifference or just indifference, but it certainly was indifference. And as I mentioned in the book, I had a friend, actually, I don't name him there, but I can, who's Admiral uh, Bud Zumwalt, the late Admiral uh, Zumwalt. And he was a uh, knew each other in a number of um, uh, boards that we sat on and so forth. And, and he had gone through with his son, his son actually had gone through just horrendous uh, battles with cancer, with several different kinds of cancer. And, um, and they wrote a book about it um, called My Father, My Son. And Bud Zumwalt um, sent me a copy of the book and scribed, um, if I recall, uh, fight, fight with all your life, never give up, but, and um, I appreciated that, uh, and it was very kind of him to, to send the book, but I have to say um, that there was nothing farther from my mind than the notion that I was going to fight this, or that this was a battle between death and myself, and I was going to win. Not at all, not at all. Uh, there was rather this awareness that I was now in a situation over which I had no control whatsoever. The other remarkable thing to me, and I suppose rather heartening thing, although I don't understand it, is that throughout it all I was not afraid. There was never a moment in which I felt fear. I was curious, I was interested in what was happening, I was observant, but I was not afraid. And I, I'm not sure this has anything to do with faith or uh, my spiritual growth or sanctity or anything of that sort, but it was the fact. And um, uh, that's, I think, rather reassuring, and in part because of this, which it's important for people to know and it's also important for me to say it in a way that it's not misunderstood. But it's not as bad as it looks. And I realize that sounds odd. But people would come in and see me, as I, as a priest, of course, have over the years seen hundreds of people in the intensive care unit and so forth. And you look at them and they look ghastly, just ghastly. I mean, they, they're... they're look like corpses barely alive with all these tubes and everything plugged into them. And I, I, when people would come and visit me in the hospital when I was able to be uh, receive visitors even for a short time, you could see the expression on people's face. Uh, you know, it's shock. Um, and uh, it's important to say to such people, that the circumstance I'm in is not as bad as it looks. People too often say, oh my God, I'd, I'd rather be dead than to be in the circumstance that that guy's in or that she's in. No, that's a mistake, uh, at least on the basis of my experience. Uh, I'm not saying it, it you know, was easy or that uh, it's just something you would wish upon anybody, of course, not. But... Um, to simply surrender yourself unqualifiedly, not is <laughs> a great act of uh, spiritual virtue necessarily, but because you have no choice. At least you have no rational choice. Um, probably, I would have to say, for me, and since death is a generality, I think one might generalize from it to others, uh, it is a good thing to have really gone through the valley of the shadow of death and to know that there's nothing, absolutely nothing, 
that you can do about this other than to entrust yourself to God. Father, we only have about three minutes left, and in that time, uh, one thing for sure, I'd like you to uh, talk about a visitation that you had that you can't quite explain, but it, 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 at the same time is still a pretty impressive story. Well, it's something that, uh, you know, there's a great deal of talk these days about near-death experiences and so forth, and uh, I inclined to call this a, a near-life experience, but it was during the uh, time of the core of the crisis, and um, I was uh, suddenly aware of myself, I was in the room alone, and suddenly aware of myself sitting up in the bed, even though I was, in physical fact, uh, lying down and uh, 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 plugged into all of these different uh, tubes and bleeping machines and so forth. And I heard, uh, I sensed a presence in the room uh, which seemed to me like the presence of two, two presences. Um, I can envision them now in my mind's eye. At the time when this happened, being a rather skeptical and uh, emphatically rational person, I critically assessed it and made sure that I knew that I was fully alert. Um, and I received a message. Now, did I, can I recall hearing a voice? No, I don't think so. But I received a message, and the message was very, very simple. And it's really the concluding line of the book, As I Lay Dying. The message is very simple. It was, um, everything is ready now. Punct. That's it. Everything is ready now. And uh, I puzzled over this message immediately. I can remember. What, what, what on earth was that about? What did it mean? Was it saying that now I should die? Now I should... You should go with these presences, which for uh, obvious reasons we'll call angels, simply because the word, the Greek word angelus means a messenger, and I received a message, uh, so there had to be a messenger. Was it an invitation I should go with them? Was it a notification that my time was up? Or was it simply uh, uh, a friendly uh, letting me know that in some uh, way, uh, it was up to me. Everything is ready now. Well, what am I supposed to do about that? Everything is ready now. Uh, but I took from it. And as best to this day, 10 years later, I take from it that there is um, a readiness to things which um are not simply imposed upon you, but in which you participate in the, in the decision. And I pray that when the day comes, as it with absolute certainty will come, when I do die, I pray, uh, I would like to think that maybe I will hear those voices again. Everything is ready now. And that I will be spiritually prepared to say now. And if people are interested in your writings, uh, what is the website that you're connected with? I believe it's for First Things. Uh, just First Things, one word, firstthings.com. Uh, and the book is As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning. My name is Fred Stella, and you've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. Again, my guest, I'd like to thank Father Richard John Newhouse, the book As I Lay Dying, Meditations Upon Returning. And please join us again at the same time next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. 
Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.